At the heart of Christianity is the reality that God is a God who transforms lives. And that's what we've been thinking about this summer with this series called Journey, as we've been thinking about these Psalms of Ascent that the Jewish people would sing as they ascended up to Jerusalem three times a year for the pilgrim feasts. And like we've said on several weeks, these were not feasts they did in order to get something from God. These were feasts that they celebrated because of what God had given them. It's not that we contribute anything, it's that we celebrate a salvation to which we've contributed nothing. And that continues for us as Christians today with the the bread and the, the juice, in our case, that we will take in a little while. It's celebrating a salvation to which we have contributed nothing. And so we're looking at Psalm 130 and 131 today, and these two psalms together paint three pictures, three compelling pictures of the transformation that God brings in a life. I think the, uh, the two psalms really do go together, and uh, where are we, page number-wise, 518, should be about right. Um, these two psalms work together, and you'll, you'll notice that at the end of both of the psalms, there's a phrase that is repeated. In the first one, in 130, verse 7, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And then in uh, 131, verse 3, there it is again, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And that phrase, in exactly that form, is not found anywhere else in the book of Psalms apart from these two. Which is why when I looked at this, and I was kind of studying this uh, quite a while back now, I was thinking, hang on, why are these two phrases only in these two Psalms, and they're right next to each other? And the more I looked, the more I got the sense that actually these two either flow together or maybe were originally one Psalm. And we'll see that as we go, because these three pictures that the psalmist gives us are like three portraits of uh, progression in the transformation of a life, the transformation that God brings. So let me read these two psalms to us, 130, and we'll just go straight into 131 as well. A song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen for the morning, more than the watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm of Ascents of David, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me, O Israel. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Where this psalm begins is where all humanity begins, where all of us begin, if you like, the the journey of transformation. Out of the depths, 
I cry to you. For the, for the Israelites, the, the sea was a frightening concept. They weren't a kind of seafaring people. They weren't big fans of setting sail and going out in ships uh, way out into the open waters. They did not like the sea. The sea was a place of, of kind of tumultuous chaos. It was sort of symbolic in their minds of, of evil and everything that was wrong. And this, this picture that is painted right at the start is of somebody who is in the sea with the depths just piling up on top of them. That's a frightening thought. Now, it's not literally that some Israelite one time did that, although one did, but it's not really him. But it's not that, you know, this is a sea psalm. This is the image that's being used to represent what it feels like to be absolutely convicted of your own sin and guilt. That's the reality for all of us. Whether we feel it or not, we're profoundly guilty. And at some point... I think when God is at work in our lives, shining the light into our lives, we feel the darkness that is within us. We feel the guilt, the, just the, the, the amount of things we've done wrong. If God's standard is so perfect, we, we've fallen so far short in what we've done, in what we've said, in what we've thought, as well as in what we've not done and not said, and, and all the kind of complexity of, of being a human. We realize, oh my goodness, I am overwhelmed with guilt. The beauty of these two psalms, when you look at them, is that they tell us how God gives great peace to the guilty. He's going to take the person who is feeling that sense of being completely overwhelmed and lead them to a place where they are at total peace. And so that beginning of Psalm 130 out of the depths I cry to you, hear my voice, I'm pleading for mercy. I remember when uh, I was on the OM ship, a missionary ship that I worked on uh, for a year, and the ship I was on, which some of you have, have lived on as well, had what we called the aft mooring station. Uh, it sounds exciting. It's not really. It's just a place where they had lots of rope. But the, the beauty of the aft mooring station was that it was almost down on a level with the water. Usually on a ship, you kind of look down at the water from above, right? It's best not to be underneath it looking at it so you tend to look down on it but on the aft mooring station you you had these sort of barriers uh, what do you call them railings around the outside and on the other side of those railings was the water and when the ship was plowing through the sea and if the waves were a little bit choppy you could reach out I could reach out and get my hand wet in the water as it was going past I used to go down there sometimes at night it's just a, a place to get away from people, a place where, uh, you know, when you're living on a ship, you're kind of desperate for solitude sometimes because there's always somebody everywhere. And I'd go down there just to pray or think or whatever. And I was struck so many times by how frightening the sea is. We would do these man overboard drills, which were kind of bizarre. You'd get a, a sort of a dummy and put a life jacket on and throw it overboard and then scream man overboard and everybody would, would stare and point and try to keep it inside as the ship did this big old maneuver to come back alongside. I forget it took about 10 minutes, 12 minutes, something ridiculous. I remember thinking as I was down in the aft mooring station, I am two feet from death. Literally, if I take a step past this railing, nobody will know. 
Nobody will be able to point. The ship won't be able to get round. And if they did, they wouldn't find me anyway because it's pitch black at night. And just, ooh, it's horrible. Just to think of how quickly the sea would just swallow you up and the depths would be on top. And that's what this psalmist feels like. It's like suddenly he's aware of his sin and his guilt and it's just closing in above him. And it feels so hopeless. He goes on in verse 3 to say, If... You, O Lord, should mark iniquities. O Lord, who could stand? If God were to watch every second of our lives, every thought in our minds, every idea that crosses through, kind of passes through our hearts, if God was watching that to keep track of our sin, we'd be absolutely hopeless, wouldn't we? We would have no chance. That's what it means. If, if God were to mark our iniquities on a big old ledger, we would be totally and utterly hopeless. But, but instead of that being God's focus, instead of God being this kind of angry headmaster in the sky looking for who he can put on detention, instead of that, we get verse 4. It says, but with you, there is forgiveness. Isn't that Amazing. The God that we're celebrating and the God that we're worshiping, the God that we're singing about is a God who doesn't really want to be known for being the judge, for being the one who keeps a track of everything we do wrong. He wants to be known as the God who forgives, the God who loves us and forgives us for the things we don't obviously deserve to be forgiven for, but he forgives us and the Bible tells us he forgives us fully, not just for some of the stuff, but not the worst bits. Not just for the kind of you know, publicly acceptable sins, but not for the skeletons in the closet. He forgives us fully for all of it. The things we've done, the things we do, the things we will still do. His forgiveness is full. And it's final. When God takes care of our sin and says, I forgive you, that's it. There's no point. Have you ever thought about this? There will be no point in our existence in heaven. If we've trusted Christ and we go to be with him, there will never be a point 10 months in or 10 years in or 10,000 years in or 10,000 times 10,000 years in. There will never be a point where God says, oh, actually... You know, actually, I'm going to bring that one sin up against you again. That one thing you did. You'll never do that. When God forgives, he forgives fully and he forgives finally. He forgives freely from where we are. He doesn't say, okay, if you're willing to contribute financially, then I'll forgive you. Or if you're willing to commit yourself, or if you're willing to turn over a new leaf, it's none of that stuff. It's, it's free from our perspective, totally and utterly free, but obviously not free to him. Like we saw in the video, it was at the ultimate cost for him that he's able to forgive us. But from where we stand, we receive it as a gift. No contribution necessary, no contribution allowed. It's forever. We're forgiven fully, finally, freely, forever. Isn't that an amazing thing? And I'm not convinced I even believe it. I know it. I preach it. I, I try to encourage others with it. But there are still times where I'm, I'm kind of uh, looking in the mirror, not literally because I don't do too much of that, but where I'm kind of just turning back in on myself just a little bit. And I kind of go, yeah, but God can't forgive you for that, Pete. 
And I have this kind of inner dialogue. Anyone else have that? This kind of sense that, yeah, God's forgiveness is amazing for everyone, but not me. And it's a struggle to believe it. But that doesn't change the fact that it's true. That when we trust him and we come to him and we plead with him for mercy, God delights to give us forgiveness. It takes a life that is being overwhelmed by the dark waves of, of guilt and all that comes with that. And it brings a transformation as we see in the next section. You see, verses 1 to 4 are saying to us that we desperately need the forgiveness that God gives. But then when we come to verse 5, to the end of Psalm 130, we find that our hope is not merely in forgiveness, but it's in God himself. We desperately need the forgiveness that only God gives, but our hope is in God himself. And notice the the things that pile up here. In verse 5, Uh, The psalmist says, it is in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. God is a God who makes promises and keeps them. So as we read the Bible and as we listen to it, as we're driving to work or however we get the Bible into us, we will hear page after page of God's character being revealed. And we will see time and again God making promises to provide for those who cannot provide for themselves, to forgive those who deserve anything but. And God's word is absolutely clear that he wants to forgive us. They're getting excited about it. Maybe we could too. God's word promises. And God keeps his promises. He's a God who makes promises and keeps them. And so because of his word, we can put our trust in him. More than that, why else do we wait for the Lord or trust the Lord? Verse 6, it says, my soul waits for the Lord. Just as uh, in verse 5, it says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits in his word, I hope. And then in verse 6, it's almost like the writer runs out of verbs because he says, my soul for the Lord. He's, been, he's established that he's waiting, and then he goes, my soul for the Lord. It's almost like he can't even pen the verbs anymore. He's so just leaning towards God. That's all he's got. My soul for the Lord waits. It's amazing, isn't it, that God doesn't just, from a distance, hurl down forgiveness and drop a sort of mass mailing of pardons for humanity. That's kind of how we might think. That's my, maybe what we might expect. But, but actually, God gives us himself. He doesn't just give us forgiveness and then kind of tolerate us. He gives us himself. New Testament, we discover that he gives us himself and his son. And, and then as the son leaves to go back to heaven, we discover that God gives himself to us by the spirit that points us to the son who reveals the father's love for us. God gives us himself. And so we wait for the Lord with a sense of hope and with a sense of anticipation because he's a God who gives us promises that he keeps. He gives us himself more than that. Down in verse seven, it says, uh, wrong Psalm, let's try this one. Um, With the Lord, it says with the Lord, and we've already had that in verse four. With the Lord, there is forgiveness, but there's more company. And I think the Lord keeps excellent company because he comes with not only forgiveness, but now in verse 7, it says, with the Lord, there is steadfast love. That's like the big neon lights word in the Old Testament. 
right? You want to kind of get a theme word to chase, chase steadfast love. It's God's gracious, self-giving love. It's not like our love. Our love tends to be that we love the lovely, right? We see uh, the most wonderful person in the world and we love them and then, you know, maybe we marry them or whatever, you know, and, and we tend to respond to what is lovely, whether it's a human or a dog or a painting or music or whatever. We love the lovely. God's love makes the unlovely lovely. It's kind of different. We, we tend to sort of have a you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours kind of uh, thing going with humanity. That's not God's approach. God doesn't say, what can I get out of Dave or what can I get out of uh, you know, Mike or Rich or Becky or whoever. God doesn't say, oh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure. No, God just loves. He loves and his love is so dedicated and so committed, it gets described with this word that we translate steadfast love. God says, you may not deserve it, but I love you. I love you for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. I just love you, and it's forever. It's steadfast love. And that comes with the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? As the Lord comes to us, he comes not only with forgiveness, but he comes with steadfast love. And then one more thing it tells us, uh, same verse, with him is plentiful redemption. It's like piling up Bible words, isn't it? Plentiful redemption. Redemption is the, the kind of buying us back from our sin and buying us back so that we're his. But plentiful is a cool word. I like the word plentiful. Happy Christmas. I bought you some chocolate. Oh, really? Oh, it's plentiful. All right, that's a positive, right? We like plentiful. And so God's redemption is plentiful. To me, it's almost like we could say it's, it's forgiveness plus. Christianity is not just an angry, it's not even, an angry God that gives you forgiveness though you don't deserve it and that's the end of the story. Now live with it. It's a God of steadfast love and plentiful redemption who forgives and gives himself. We get so much more. Christianity is like this lifelong journey of discovering how much more it is we get when we get God. Just how wonderful it is to be his. Plentiful redemption, forgiveness plus. And there's an image in the second half of 130 that I think is a significant step forward from what we had in the first four verses. In the first four verses, remember, it's the, the overwhelming waves, the darkness of, of the sea closing in above you in a, in a kind of moment of sheer terror as you realize how desperately you need God's mercy. Having received forgiveness, the image is still dark. It's still nighttime, if you like. It's, it's the image of a watchman waiting for the morning. A watchman was an important person in those days, standing on the city wall while you... Uh, sleep and snore peacefully in your beds. The watchman is looking out across the, the kind of the bushes and the trees and the valleys just to see if anything moves. And it's fine if it's, you know, like a jackal or something that moves. It's not fine if it's an enemy soldier. And so the watchman is kind of living in this uh, potentially terrifying darkness. But it probably doesn't take too long for a watchman to get into the rhythm of the fact that night finishes and day comes. 
The watchman doesn't do anything to make day come. There's no point doing a good morning dance to try and get the sun up sooner. He can't contribute to the morning coming, but it comes. And he watches and he waits and he waits and he watches. Same word, incidentally, as, oh Lord, if you marked our transgressions, if you watched to keep track of our transgressions, here it's the watchman watching for the dawn. It's the same idea, but now it's, it's looking and watching and waiting. But really, if, if you're a watchman, I'm sure you'd probably do the same thing I would do. You'd be looking at the, the kind of the ground level, trying to see what's going on, and you keep looking up, keep trying to see that first glow in the east as the sun would start to rise and the, the light would break into the darkness because when that happens, your shift is over, your work is done, you've been successful through the night in achieving absolutely nothing, and you've got through to a new day. I would imagine that watchmen would watch for the morning quite intently. I can't imagine a watchman getting to sort of 10 a.m. and then having someone nudge them and say, oh, by the way, morning came four hours ago. Oh, did it? I missed that. No, for a watchman, you're watching, but you're waiting. Come on, son. I want the sun to rise so that my job is done. And the psalmist says, that's what we're like. Having been forgiven by God, we watch in the midst of the same kind of darkness, in the midst of terrifying circumstances, now we watch, now we wait, now we have hope. It's true, isn't it, that Christians, those who know the Lord, have hope, where others have nothing like that to compare. Others have vague wishes and and distractions. We have hope. We know that there's an end to what we're going through. We know that no matter how tough it gets, no matter how much struggle there is, this is just a season, this is just a night, but the morning's coming. Now when the morning comes, the Lord comes, we we will be with him and it will be all over and then the day will last forever. That's the hope of a believer, that this night is a brief night, but the day to come that will dawn with the coming of Christ will last forever. And that's the hope that we have. Suddenly, our circumstances are still dark, but within us, there's hope. And we anticipate, and we look forward, and we watch, and we wait. As the psalmist comes to the end of those two images, he's so blown away by the fact that that with God, there is forgiveness. With God, there is steadfast love. With God, there is plentiful redemption. He says, okay, so, so therefore, Israel, hope in the Lord. He just wants everyone to respond to the wonder of knowing who God is, to the wonder of all that God gives and all that God brings. It's a beautiful picture of of the progress from not knowing God and the terror of that to having hope and certainty and security, even in the darkness, to be able to anticipate that there's something more to come. But then we go to Psalm 131. And I think there's a progression here from from these two images to a third image. Because in 131, what we have is that we grow to find peace in the presence of God. Not only is our hope in God himself that one day he's coming for us, but we grow, as we mature as believers, we grow to find peace in his presence now. It's It's a wonderful thing to anticipate the future but I think it's a, a more, an even more mature thing to rest in God's presence 
and to find everything that we need in his presence now. It's still nighttime. It's still darkness. The image is the third image of darkness. There's the darkness of the waves kind of closing in on top. There's the darkness of the night waiting for the morning. But, but now there's the darkness of the night for the weaned child. Those of you that have been around uh, little ones, you know that they have an incredible capacity to make noise in the middle of the night. It's unbelievable. It's more powerful than any smoke alarm. They should make baby cry smoke alarms. That would probably save lives because when the baby cries, it just kind of pierces through everything and you wake up and the mother cares for the child. It's kind of the way it works, right? And I have utmost respect for the, the months cumulatively that Melanie has spent uh, taking care of, of little ones that cry in the night got great respect for every mum that's ever gone through that because it's so hard when you've just got back to sleep and you just get into the deep sleep to then suddenly be brought out of it again. And that can go on for a long time. And so the child is desperate and the child cries and, and mums, even though they've got nothing left in their energy tanks, somehow get up and do it again, care for the child. But eventually that comes to an end. Eventually, that, that little one is weaned, and they're put onto solids, and they kind of start doing that you know, grab and stuff thing, and it's kind of fun to watch, but for mums, it must be an incredible relief, because it tends to be the, uh, getting towards the time, if not already, where that little one's going to sleep through. But we also know that no child sleeps through forever. There will be the odd night when something happens, a dream, a noise, a monster in the corner. There will be something and the cry will come again. And the mother, or more realistically, probably the father at this point, but one of them will go to the child and hold the child, and the child will just melt. It's not grabbing. It's not trying to get milk. It's not trying to, to, to you know, have some need replaced. It's just peaceful because it's safe in the arms of a parent. That's a weaned child. No longer grasping and grabbing and trying, just secure because mum's here. Maybe you can remember when you were small how sometimes uh, you'd be maybe playing with your toys and, and you'd maybe you have these really special toys, but then all of a sudden you'd have to put them down and just go check that she's still there. Yeah, she's still there. Okay, I can keep playing. Maybe you remember the times where you'd, you'd trip. And you'd, you'd graze your knee and, and, you know, it's like the world has ended, but, but miracle of all miracles, a kiss from mum on the knee and all was well. The times where you, you don't really care what the story is, you just want a story because if you are told a story, then you are wrapped up in those arms on that lap, hearing that voice, and you're safe. There's something about the presence of a parent in this case that is so powerful that the psalmist says, you know what? That's what my soul is like in light of all that God's done for me. Just knowing that he's with me means that I'm not alone. Just knowing that he's with me means that I don't need to be afraid. Just knowing that he's with me means that I have peace now, even in the darkness. David wrote that. And in the first verse, he's saying, I'm not going to lift up my heart. I'm not going to lift up my eyes. I'm not going to get all kind of haughty and proud trying to contemplate the complexities of running a nation. He said, no, like a child, I just curl up in my Abba Father's arms. 
I just curl up in the secure embrace of my God because that's what a weaned child does. That's what I'm like. It's the childlikeness of maturity. I wonder, where are you at in that progression? Maybe you're, you're over here and you, you kind of look really okay on the outside, but inside, when I talk about the depths closing in, that terrifies you. Maybe you have that sense that at moments you just kind of catch a glimpse of, of the fact that if you die and stand before God, you're petrified of that. And maybe you kind of hide it and, and sort of medicate it and distract yourself from it, but it comes back and it comes back. And, and maybe that's where you are. And, and, and maybe today's the day you just need to say, okay, Lord, if you've provided Jesus, if that death is what it takes, then I, I need you. I plea for your mercy. I want to be forgiven, Lord, please. Maybe that's where you are. Maybe that's already occurred. Maybe you've already trusted Christ and you find that the, the, the forgiveness God gives stirs a, a respectful fear in him, just a wow, what a God response. Maybe you're learning what it is to trust him in the darkness, to anticipate that this is not the end of the story, to know that there is better to come and the better that is coming is him. And you're learning that actually I don't just have forgiveness, I have forgiveness plus. I have plentiful redemption and maybe you're in this stage of learning all that that means or maybe you're maturing towards this childlike stage of saying, okay, Lord, I'm really excited about heaven. But I, I really need to learn what it means to have a soul that's quieted resting in your arms, trusting in your care, knowing that if I'm in your presence now, I have all that I could ever need. I don't think any of us are consistently here. All of us drift uh, in this direction. All of us have moments of fear. All of us cry out spiritually, if you like, in the night to God. But God wants us to be here, trusting him that he is everything that we need that we as thoroughly guilty people are given from this gracious God a great peace. More than that, we're given this great God as ours. He doesn't just give us forgiveness. He doesn't even just give us hope. He gives us himself. It's a beautiful progression of portraits, progression of pictures showing the transformation that God wants to bring in our lives. We don't deserve it. We cannot contribute anything to it. He's done it all. And as we think about the cross and we go to the bread and the juice in just a moment, that's what we're doing is we're just coming empty-handed once again and we're saying, Lord, I've got empty hands. I give nothing. And you've given everything. Would you not only forgive me for my sin, would you stir hope within me as I anticipate all that you want to give as as the future unfolds. But even more than that, Lord, would you give me the peace that can only come from resting in your presence, not grasping, not, not proud and haughty, just resting in your arms. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who delights to bring that transformation to people like us. Lord, I pray for any 
uh, here today who aren't certain that they're yours, who still have those moments of terror in anticipation of judgment, Lord, we, we would have no hope if it weren't for your forgiveness and your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you don't only forgive us, but you give us your steadfast love. You give us yourself plentiful redemption. Help us to learn more and more what it means to hope in the Lord and to wait on the Lord and to trust you in the midst of the darkness of our lives. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would be able to be moved on to that final image of being like a weaned child resting in your arms, secure, at peace, because you're with us. As we take this bread and this juice now, we we just ask that by your spirit you would uh, give us a glimpse. Give us a glimpse of, of our own sinfulness. Give us a glimpse of the wonder of the cross, the sacrifice that you paid to pay the price for our sin. And Lord, we pray that you'd also give us a glimpse of the life that you want us to enjoy, anticipating being with you face to face that day when it comes will be so good, but also enjoying your presence even now. Lord, you know where we're at. You know what's going on in our hearts. You know all the the various struggles and doubts and fears and everything else. And we just place ourselves before you and ask that even as we take this bread and this juice, that you would minister specifically to our hearts as individuals, as your children. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.